Let's pray as we transition to our time of studying scripture. God, I thank you for the truth in that song that we sang that despite life's circumstances, it is well with our souls if we've put our faith in Christ. And that anchor, God, can get us through the darkest chapters in life. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your commitment to us, God. And I thank you that you put it in this man's heart to write that song. God, as we come to this time of studying your word, I pray that you'll open our hearts, help us to see the things that we need to see from this letter in Revelation. Amen. So I was told last week that you all looked at the letter in Revelation chapter 2 to the church at Ephesus. And we're going to continue in Revelation today, also in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, looking at another letter. We're going to skip a few because I think that the letter we're going to look at today ties in very well with the letter to the church at Ephesus. But as we're studying these letters, keep in mind that, um, like I think my dad mentioned last week, we're studying them to learn the expectations that God has for his churches. As we want to be a church that follows Christ faithfully and is everything that God wants us to be, um, the letters to the churches in Revelation are a great place to go. Remember the Ephesian church last week, kind of a, a recap of what we studied. They did many things well. Their service and their works and their faith were all good. And they, they even, it says, that they even, um, they had good theology. They had good doctrine. They tested those who claimed to be apostles and weren't, and they found them to be false. They were guarding the truth at Ephesus. And it says that they hated the works of the, and the teachings of the Nicolaitans, whatever that false teaching was. But remember, the main flaw at the church at Ephesus was that they had abandoned the love that they had originally, the love that they had at first. And they were told to repent and to do the works that they did at the beginning and as we remember that, we're going to study today the church, the letter to the church of Thyatira. It's going to be starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. So let's start reading this together. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. That's how this letter starts off. It's a great beginning to the letter, to the, of the letter to the church. It starts off well. The description of Christ that his eyes are like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, it's actually pulled directly from chapter 1. If you look in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, it says, The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Many of the descriptions of Christ at the beginning of these letters, the seven letters, are pulled directly from the descriptions of Christ in chapter 1. But we see this description of Christ as having eyes like flaming fire, Later on in Revelation as well, in chapter 19, as Christ is depicted as 
returning on a horse, he, he, it is said that his eyes were like flaming fire. And Christ goes on and he compliments the church. He always starts out with compliments and before he follows it up with corrections. And the compliments that he gives to the church in Thyatira are great things to be said of a church. He says that he knows their works and their love and their faith, their service, their endurance, and that their latter works exceeded the first. They're succeeding in many of the same ways that the Ephesian church is succeeding. And they're even doing better than they were in some areas. The Ephesian church lost their first love, but at Thyatira, love is strong. He doesn't have any, any doubt that the church at Thyatira is a church full of love. And the Ephesian church is told to go back and to imitate the works they did originally. But the church of Thyatira, their works are good. He says, I know your works, and your latter works are exceeding your first works. So many of the ways that the Ephesian church had slipped away from being what they were supposed to do, the church at Thyatira was, was going strong. And it seems like a really healthy church. If you had to pick a church, if you were moving to a brand new city, and you were picking a church to join, a church that had good works, good love, good faith, servant-hearted, patient endurance, and was growing in works, would be the type of church that you would want to be at. Those are all marks of a great church. And there's only one problem at the church of Thyatira. There is one outstanding issue. And what's interesting is that the church at Thyatira did well the things that Ephesus failed at, but the thing that Ephesus did well, the church at Thyatira failed at, and that was guarding the truth. If the Ephesian church and the Thyatiran church could have combined, it would have been a healthy church. If they could have shared their strengths and their weaknesses together, they would have accomplished that. The Thyatiran church would have reawakened love and good works in the Ephesian church, and the Ephesian church would have guarded the truth in ways that the Thyatiran church failed at. What is the main problem at the church in Thyatira? I think that you find it in verse 20. He says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. If I had to pick one word in this letter that is the most important word, it's the word tolerate. The, the, the Thyatiran church failed because they tolerated things that they weren't supposed to tolerate. And I just tell you guys, this is an important thing for us to remember today. You can't turn on the TV without hearing the word tolerate or hearing tolerance. Tolerance is proclaimed to us as Christians as being something that we are forced to do, that we have to do, and that it's connected to love. We're encouraged at our jobs to tolerate different viewpoints and different lifestyles. We face that issue in our families, that we have to tolerate sin and tolerate different differences of opinions. And if we're not careful, it'll slip into the church as well. And that's what had happened at the church at Thyatira. And just to be clear, I want to be really careful about how we look at this word tolerate and how we look at the failure 
at the church of Thyatira because it's very true that Christians are supposed to be patient, gracious, gentle, humble, and forgiving people. We are. More than anyone else, we should be those things. If you want to look at some passages of Scripture to highlight that, you can look at Romans 15.1, where we're encouraged to be patient with those who are weak. Those who are strong in the faith have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Patience. If you want to look at being gentle and Christians' responsibility to be gentle, look at 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26, where Paul encourages Timothy to correct his opponents with gentleness, hoping that someday God will give them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Even our opponents we correct with gentleness. If you want to look for a verse about humility, look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where we're told to count others as more important or more valuable than ourselves. And we're supposed to do all things in humility. And if you want a good verse about forgiveness, look in Colossians 3.13, where we're told to forgive just as we have been forgiven, freely and without grudges to anyone. Guys, Christians are supposed to be gentle and patient and gracious and loving and forgiving and humble people. And that you can be all of those things and still not fail in the way that the church at Thyatira failed. We are patient, gracious, gentle, humble, and forgiving. And yet in some things, it's like we can't give an inch. Look in Philippians 3.15, if you will. I think that this passage highlights this balance. Philippians 3.15. This is true, what Paul says here to the church at Philippi. And it it emphasizes the point that there, there is grace in the church for differences of opinion. In verse 14, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul had a big enough view of God that even though he knew what it was that mature Christians should believe, he realized there were going to be differences of opinion. If you're not to that point yet, I trust that God will reveal it to you eventually. Paul was very tolerant, very patient towards other believers, even in differences of opinion. But there's also, you come to a point where something is so important and you have to guard it And you can't tolerate any differences. But Philippians 3.15 shows us that there's room in the church for varying levels of maturity and varying levels of understanding of Scripture. We're all all different different distances down the path towards Christ-likeness and true understanding of Scripture. So my point is, as we look at this failure in tolerance, that the church of Thyatira had, we are to be very patient people. This passage shouldn't make you corner someone after church and say, 
Look, I thought that I was supposed to be patient, but after reading this passage, there's a lot of things I want to tell you. That's not the point of this passage in Revelation chapter 2. Guys, I think that the church at Thyatira failed in remembering what a church was supposed to be. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives us a definition of the church. He says that the church is both a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We all know what a pillar is, and they knew what pillars were back then. Temples were everywhere in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, where this church was, Thyatira. They saw temples all over the place. And the temples back then had the greatest pillars. And what's interesting is that some of those temples are still standing today. The roof's gone, the walls are gone, but the pillars still stand. They had tons of examples of what pillars did. And, but they also knew what a buttress was. That's not something that we really use in common speech nowadays. What a buttress was is it's an, ar- it's an architectural term for something that supports a wall. If you build a wall that's too tall, it becomes unsteady and it may fall. And what they would do is they would take and they would build an adjoining wall. Sometimes it was at a slope, sometimes it wasn't, but it was called a buttress. And it would be joined to the wall to give stability to it. And Paul says that the definition of a church in 1 Timothy 3 is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Guys, designed in the very nature of the church is a defense for the truth. The church is supposed to uphold the truth like a pillar and brace the truth like a buttress. We're supposed to be the first line of defense in making sure that the truth doesn't get knocked around by the world. We support and defend the truth. And somewhere somewhere along the line, Thyatira forgot that. I think if you had asked Paul, why does a church exist? He would have told us, a church exists to defend the truth. And as we're going to read today, Thyatira didn't do that. Look in verse 20 again of Revelation chapter 2. And let's kind of dig into what was going on. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I don't think her name was actually Jezebel. I think that that is a picture that God is painting for this church. I don't think anyone at this point would have willingly named their child Jezebel. You're not going to find the name Jezebel in any books of baby names today either. Jezebel more than any name in all of Israel's history, was the name for the woman that was most hated. She was despised. She is the worst woman in the Bible. If you want to read about Jezebel, she pops up in 1 Kings 16 and 1 Kings 21. But she was a great enemy to the Israelite nation. After David was king and after Solomon was king, the nation split. And you had the ten northern tribes, and they were still called Israel. And then you had the two southern tribes called Judah. And somewhere along in the history of the ten northern tribes, there came a king named Ahab. And he was an awful king in Israel's history. 
And one of the things that he did that made God so frustrated was he took a pagan wife, and the wife's name was Jezebel. She came from a neighboring city, the city of Sidon. It was a coastal city. But as she came to live in the palace with Ahab and be his wife, she brought with her idolatry. And for the rest of her history, as long as God let her live in Israel, she seduced and taught the Israelites to worship Baal. If you guys remember the great story of Elijah and how he confronted those hundreds of prophets of Baal in 1 Kings, Jezebel was the one who instigated that. After he defeated them, um, Jezebel actually sent a messenger to Elijah telling him, I'm going to do to you what you did to the prophets of Baal. I'm going to kill you. She hated Elijah. She was Elijah's worst enemy. And she hated all the prophets. She tried to find all of the prophets, the loyal prophets to God in Israel and kill them. And she nearly succeeded in wiping all of them out. The prophets had to go in hiding. Elijah had to go in hiding because of Jezebel. She was, in the minds of Israelites, the greatest enemy at this time. And she had slipped into Israel just the same way that this Jezebel had slipped into the church. As corrupting of an influence as Jezebel was in Elijah's time, this Jezebel was to the church at Thyatira. God could not have picked a more despised woman to represent this lady in Thyatira. There are some other bad girls in the Bible. No one comes close to Jezebel. No one. God hated Jezebel so much that he actually sent a prophet to Jezebel and told her, I'm going to avenge the prophets that you've killed by killing you and by making you despised. Whenever she died, God so hated Jezebel that he caused dogs to eat her so that she wouldn't even receive honor in a burial. She was the worst, guys. She was the worst. And for the church at Thyatira, to have this, read, this letter read in your service and for God to describe this woman as a Jezebel, it could not have been a worse description. What she was doing to the church at Thyatira was just as destructive as what was done in the Old Testament to the Israelites. She was the same type of woman. What was it that she did? She was really guilty of three things. She claimed to be a prophetess, which could have been true back then. There were prophets and prophetesses back then, and they were pretty common. If you read through Acts, Paul interacts with a bunch of them. One of them, the most famous, his name is Agabus. And he predicted a drought, and he predicted Paul's imprisonment, and they both came to, hap came to be. Philip, who was one of the seven, um, one of the seven uh, in the book of Acts who were chosen to serve the widows, had seven daughters, and they were said to be prophetesses. But she was a false prophetess. She claimed to be one, but she wasn't. 
And if you remember back in the Old Testament, back then the penalty for claiming to be a prophet or a prophetess when you weren't was the penalty of death. She claimed by being, to, by being a prophetess to have a unique divine inspiration. She claimed to have unique revelation from God when in fact God had not spoken to her. God had not instructed her. God had not given her a message to give to the church at Thyatira. But she claimed that unique status and then she used it to both teach and seduce the Christians at Thyatira. She was doubly guilty of leading them astray. Not only did she give them bad information, but she then took them by the hand and seduced them to abandon God. Not only content was she in giving false information, she pulled them wholeheartedly into a a type of lifestyle that pulled them away from true service to God. Now, what she did exactly is a little bit up for debate. When it says that she led them to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, I'll just be honest with you, I'm not sure exactly what that means. There are some differences of opinion here. Whether or not it was a physical sexual immorality that she led them into or a spiritual sexual immorality. Because if we take the imagery of Jezebel in the Old Testament, that's exactly what God said of them too. God sent prophets into Israel saying, you guys have left me as your spiritual husband. And you've abandoned me. And a lot of times the description in the Old Testament is that they whored after other gods. And they were spiritually unfaithful, just like a husband or a wife could be physically unfaithful. And that is the exact same imagery and the exact same phrasing that he used in the prophets back then was he said it's like sexual immorality. And even if in Revelation we see sexual immorality being used as an image, as a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness. Personally, that's the way I lean, that she wasn't leading them wholeheartedly into physical sin like sexual immorality, but she was leading them to a spiritual abandonment of their husband. You remember, the church is the bride of Christ. And I think what God was trying to say is that Jezebel had led them, the church of God, the bride of Christ, to abandon her true husband and to serve and relate to a very different type of husband, idolatry. But it is possible that physical sexual immorality was part of this. Because what Jezebel probably did was she probably took, and a lot of this is speculation, but it's very possible that she combined the native religions of Thyatira with true Christianity. And and that would have included sexual immorality. That was part of their worship of their pagan Greek gods. But whatever it was that she had done, she had led them wholeheartedly into idolatry. Whether it was purely spiritually or whether it was physical, she had led them away from Christ, which is exactly what Jezebel did. So I would just encourage you, even though maybe it's not quite as clear as we wish it was, that's not the big point. The big point here is not to figure out exactly what it was that Jezebel had caused them to do. 
the big point the big point of this passage is that she led them away from a true devotion to God and the church at Thyatira tolerated it. Christ wished that the church of Thyatira would have stood up and guarded the truth. I read this passage and I can't help but wonder, where were the pastors at the church at Thyatira? Where were the elders who were designed by God's design for the church to be the first line of defense against heresy? Where were they? They're silent. There's no one standing up to Jezebel. She had gained so much influence in this church that either she had seduced even some of them or they had just decided to stop fighting. Where are the pastors in Thyatira? And even after that, where are the faithful church members in Thyatira who are standing up and saying, no, regardless of what you're doing, whether it's physical sexual immorality or spiritual immorality and abandoning our true love for Christ, what what you're doing is wrong and we can't tolerate it. We have to be, like Paul said, a pillar and a buttress to the truth and we have to guard the truth. I don't know where they were. But it's not a good situation that the church in Thyatira finds itself in. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Look what he says about her in verses 21 through 22. It gives us a little bit clearer picture of what she was doing. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Those verses are part of the reason why I think that it wasn't a physical sexual immorality, because Christ threatens to punish her and those she has influenced, and even her children. Now, I don't think Christ was threatening to kill her physical children. I think he was saying, those who have followed her, her spiritual children, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to punish both Jezebel and her followers. At one point, John, who actually wrote Revelation 2, um, writes, and I believe it's in, it's in First or, or Second John, but he says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children are walking according to the truth. They weren't John's physical children, they were his spiritual children. This is the same type of children that I think it's talking about. Jezebel's spiritual children. Those who had bought into her lies. And he's threatening to punish them as well. But also that Christ says, I am he who searches minds and hearts. If it was just a physical sexual immorality... Why is he the one who searches minds and hearts? Why is that what he emphasizes? He could have just said, I am the one who sees all. But the fact that he was saying, I'm the one who searches minds and hearts, lends me to think that he was saying, I'm the one who sees the unfaithfulness of you guys' hearts. Your unfaithfulness to God. What I also find interesting about this is that in most of the letters to the churches in Revelation, It is Christ paying a compliment, Christ giving rebuke, and Christ giving corrective actions. 
Like for the Ephesian church, it was repent and do the works you did at the beginning. What I find interesting about this letter is that Christ doesn't give any corrective actions. Most of the letters he does, but not Thyatira. The time for the church to act has passed, and the time for Christ to act has come. He doesn't say, behold, here are the things you should do to fix this situation. He says, behold, I will come, and I will throw her on a sickbed, her and her children. Christ takes this very personally. The church had stopped defending the truth, but Christ hadn't. And that's a comfort, because all of us are um, flawed human beings, and we could fail in defending the truth, but it's good to know that we serve a God who defends the truth himself as well. And he's about to come and declare war on Jezebel and on all of her teachings. Christ is about to take action, and it's a scary thing. He threatens Jezebel. He threatens her followers. And he's about to clean house in Thyatira. So that's the bad news from this, this letter. The church at Thyatira had tolerated things that they should not have tolerated. And it's a warning to us at Trinity and to every church who reads this letter that while we are a patient, gentle, humble, forgiving people, when it comes to this, when it comes to God's truth, we have to draw a line. And a lot of times it's a slow fade into idolatry or a slow fade into bad doctrine. I don't think that there was a business meeting at the church of Thyatira where they decided to abandon and tolerate things that they shouldn't have. But slowly the practice changed and it takes vigilance. But the good news is that even though they tolerated what they shouldn't have and even though a bad a bad false teacher had slipped into their midst, there were still faithful people at the church in Thyatira. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The bad news from this letter is that a church can tolerate what they should have stood against. But the good news is that God is strong enough to guard his children, even in the midst of a church that has wandered. There are people in Thyatira who have stayed faithful. There weren't enough to battle Jezebel, or they didn't have the courage to battle Jezebel, but they stayed faithful to Christ, and he saw that. He was going to come and punish Jezebel, but he was going to come and reward the believers. God's strong enough to keep those who are his, even in the worst of circumstances. Just like we sang about. It's well with our soul. Guys, God is strong enough to protect the hearts of those who are faithful to him. 
there were faithful believers, and they get some great promises here. He promises that he will come to them. He will come back. He doesn't give them extra burdens. He refers to them as conquerors, and he'll share authority with them. And in the last few verses, when it talks about ruling with a rod of iron and and, um, treading on pots, that's almost completely pulled out of Psalm chapter 2. Read that, and then this afternoon, read Psalm chapter 2, and it is going to sound almost exactly the same to you. It's almost word for word. I think when Christ said this, he was thinking of Psalm 2. And Psalm chapter 2 is a great psalm about how all of the world is setting themselves up against God and against his anointed one, but God's up in heaven and he scoffs and he laughs, and he still gives authority to the Son. And it's a it's a psalm about ultimate victory. And I think Christ is wanting to remind them of that psalm as he writes this letter to them. You guys have been dealing with a Jezebel who has set herself up against me just like the rulers did in Psalm 2. She's leading people astray. She's leading people into idolatry. But I'm going to come. I'm going to fix things. And I will have ultimate victory. And if you're a believer you get to share in the authority that Christ has been given by God. Great promises to those who have stayed true to Christ. God's grace can keep believers from the corrupting influence of the Jezebels of the Old Testament, the Jezebels of the New Testament, and the Jezebels today. In the Old Testament, remember there's this great story about Elijah, and he has reached the end of his rope. And he says, God, it's just me. I'm the only one that's left. And you remember, God has to remind him, no, I have kept many men from bowing their knees to Baal. He protected the hearts of believers in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. No Jezebel can completely overcome the truth. The church's responsibility is to support and uphold the truth, but God takes that responsibility upon himself as well. We team up with God to accomplish that. So in one way, this passage is a great warning about guarding the truth. But in another way, this passage is a great promise that God himself will guard the truth and his children. So in closing, I just remind us all this morning, there's only two types of people here today at Trinity Baptist. Believers who need to know Scripture better so that we can be on guard against Jezebels. Because none of us know this as well as we should. We all have room to grow. We all have room to grow in being a pillar and a buttress of the truth. If you're a believer, I hope you know the Bible. And if you don't, it's never too late to start learning the Bible. It's never too late to become a student of Scripture, to be what God has designed us to be. But I also know that there may be people here who you're more like Jezebel than those erring believers. And what's great about this passage is that it highlights the patience of God towards the believers who have failed in tolerating Jezebel, but even to Jezebel. Look at what he says in verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. Jezebel was the worst woman character in the entire Old Testament. And there is a Jezebel in the Thyatiran church, but God didn't just crush her. 
That would have been efficient, right? For God to just give Jezebel a heart attack as soon as she starts leading the Thyatiran church astray. But he didn't do that. He was patient even with a Jezebel and gave even Jezebel time to repent. And I'll just tell you this morning, if you find yourself here today and you don't know Christ, he's giving you time to repent just like he gave Jezebel time to repent. It's a great warning that even those who are farthest from God, he is still patient and gracious too. And it's also a great picture of what he offers. You may be out there thinking, I don't want to come to Christ because I don't want to live under a bunch of rules. And I'll just tell you, the Christ in this passage is a Christ who doesn't want to load people with burdens. He's not in the business of burdening his people. He takes sinners and turns them into conquerors. So all of us have something we can learn from this passage this morning. I hope it's encouraged you. I hope that we as a church won't tolerate things that we shouldn't tolerate. We'll be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. But also you as a family and as an individual. Set it in your heart to be a guardian of the truth. Let's pray this morning. And as Larry and as Todd come up to lead us in a time of worship and, and thought, this is for you. This is for you to do business with God this morning. Maybe you need to commit to be a Christian who doesn't tolerate lies, who doesn't tolerate idolatry. Or maybe for the first time this morning, you need to come to God and say, thank you for giving me time to repent. I don't want to ignore that anymore. I'm going to pray for us. God, I thank you for this letter. I thank you that in so many ways, it's such a grave letter. So many things were good about this church, but what was bad about the church at Thyatira was such a serious issue. And yet we still see your grace and your love shining through this passage towards Jezebel, giving her time to repent, towards the believers who had failed and were tolerating her. God, you're still going to make them conquerors. You're still not going to load them with burdens. You're still going to share your authority with them. I pray that you'll help us in a culture that screams we have to be tolerant and that without tolerance there is no love. This passage tells us you can love and also refuse to tolerate things that should not be tolerated in the household of God. I pray that we'll take this passage to heart, God. I pray that you'll help us as we study these letters to the churches in Revelation. You'll help us to understand the expectations you have for us and that you'll help us to be faithful, mature believers at a faithful, mature church. Amen.